And if you have a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah 52, or you can turn to Philippians chapter 2, or you can turn wherever you'd like to turn. But we're going to be in Isaiah 52. Go ahead. Isaiah 52. Christmas is, a lot, uh, is about a lot of things, and one thing we often overlook is the fact that Christmas is about Jesus as servant. And we've already heard about Jesus as servant in Philippians chapter 2, but I want to draw your attention to Jesus as servant when it comes to Christmas. Um, in Philippians chapter 2, it does say that he, is, he took on the form of a servant and he became obedient, which is what servants do, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And that servant theme is an important theme. Uh, what got me thinking about this at first is when we were looking at Ephesians 1 several weeks ago, when we were looking at the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and the Father is going to send the Son. Well, you start looking at these themes and how they relate in Scripture, and He sends the Son as a servant to do something, to perform a certain task, and the Son obeys, and the Son does everything correctly and rightly out of devotion to His Father, and He redeems us, and as a result of His obedient work, He is highly exalted. And so it just got me thinking, and I've been meditating on that, and I thought this would be a great thing for us to think about when it comes to Christmas. The incarnation, Jesus takes on flesh, he becomes one of us. He humbles himself, born in a stable. Well, why? He is the obedient servant because the Father has sent him to do that, to redeem us, to save us, ultimately so he can be highly exalted. Well, when you start thinking about servant, it doesn't take very long. When you're reading through the Bible, thinking about the Bible, you think, well, that's Isaiah, the, the, the suffering servant. Even in Philippians chapter 2, a lot of you have a, a cross-reference notation in your Bible, and it'll reference Isaiah, maybe Isaiah 40, Isaiah 42, maybe Isaiah 52, maybe Isaiah 53. It could just reference Isaiah because the servant theme is a big deal in Isaiah. As a matter of fact, Israel is called servant. They're supposed to be the faithful servant. And yet, if anything, Isaiah is all about Israel's sin and Israel's failure to be a faithful, loyal servant. And so where it drives us toward the end, and now we get into chapter 52 and 53, the faithful servant that Israel wasn't, Jesus, the Israelite, is. And he is perfectly loyal and perfectly faithful in humbling himself so that he might even save his people from their sins. It's fascinating how all of these things intersect. And so I thought, I'll preach the compliment to Philippians 2 today, which is Isaiah 53. But to understand Isaiah 53, you need to understand Isaiah 52. In fact, even a lot of our Bible versions put the two together. They don't even give you a chapter break. And I have to confess, I didn't get to Isaiah 53. <laughs> I only got to 52. And so today we're not going to be in Isaiah 53. Sorry if you're excited about that. We're only going to get to Isaiah 52. Uh, when Christ comes, what does that mean in Isaiah 52? I don't think you'll be disappointed. Um, when Christmas comes, when Christ comes, we see what we see in Isaiah 52 and 53. So if you're taking notes today and you'd like to jot some, something down, in Isaiah 52, we'll look at this matter of service and there'll be six highlights 
We'll just divide it into six portions, uh, six highlights that have to do with Christmas and Christ's coming, um, focusing on Him humbling Himself. Maybe just a few more things before we get into it. Isaiah 52 is not without its challenges when we read it, especially as English readers, especially as non-Jews. There's all kinds of poetic language, figurative speech. Um, It's utilizing a lot of Old Testament themes when it comes to deliverance. But we can understand it. Exodus kind of talk, freeing, redemption. The people were enslaved and oppressed and they've been freed. Isaiah draws upon that because he expects his audience to understand some of that. Another interesting fact in reading commentaries and things like that that I came across is there was great Jewish affirmation of Isaiah 52 as messianic, meaning it's about Messiah, up until the point where Jesus came to earth. So pre-time of Christ, many Jewish interpreters interpreted this and, and, and said, definitely this is messianic. This is about the coming deliverer. That's what Isaiah 52 and 53 are about. And then after Jesus came and looked so much like the one described in Isaiah 52 and 53, and yet they didn't like Jesus, many abandoned that interpretation and said, well, Isaiah 52 and 53, it's about such and such a prophet. It's about someone else. It's about this person. It's about that person. just thought that was kind of interesting. One final thing to say is, Remember that when we look at Old Testament prophecies, it's really hard to distinguish between first and second coming because Jesus is described as coming. Okay? We know because we know more. He comes and does his perfect work and yet that anticipates his return when everything is what we might say is fully realized, fully actualized. And so some of these things have to do with the future and yet all of them have to do with his coming and relate to him. Okay, enough of that. When Christmas comes, number one, expectancy is expected. Expectancy is expected. Okay? And we'll see this in verses one and two. This is like Christmas morning at my house when my kids are up too early, right? And mom and dad are grumpy in bed. You know what it's like if you've been around little kids and they're up at six o'clock in the morning and you're thinking, what in the world is happening? We were up late last night. What do they think it is? Christmas morning or something? Yeah, expectancy is expected. They're waiting. They're they're waiting for cinnamon rolls. They're waiting for all your traditions and all the things you might do in your house as parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles or whatever it might be. Expectancy is expected. It's Christmas morning. And Isaiah is letting us know that when it comes to Jesus coming, Messiah coming, you should be expecting it. Expectancy is expected. Looking, waiting, longing, anticipating, excited about all of this. We see it in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, awake, right? Expectation, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Get ready, put on your best, prepare. This is what you need to be ready for. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and unclean. This is what you've been waiting for. You've been waiting for deliverance. You, you, you want to be freed from oppression. 
free from defilement from all of these others who've defiled you and oppressed you and enslaved you. Well, when Messiah comes, this is what you've been waiting for. Be ready. Kind of reminds me of John the Baptist when he's trying to get everybody ready for Jesus to come in his first coming. It would be true in the first. It should be true in the second. Verse 2 says, Shake yourself from the dust and arise. No more mourning, it seems to indicate. No more being down. No more being frustrated. No more you know, sackcloth and ashes kind of thing. But here, uh, rise from the dust. Uh, arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bounds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Those, those entrapments of slavery. What a great symbol. Take those off. This is a time to act like you're free because you are going to be free. This is enthusiastic. It's expected. Freedom from the servant humbling himself for you is where it's going to go in verse 13, but we're not going to get to that yet. And here's why, okay? Liberation is expected. Act like it. Be excited. Here's why. Number two, when Christmas comes, when Christ comes, redemption comes. Redemption comes. We see this throughout. Let's just look at a sampling. In verse three, he uses the word redeemed. You shall be redeemed. We'll talk about what that means there in a little while. I just wanted you to see the word. Verse 9, if you drop down there, it says, Break forth together into singing, you, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed or freed, set free from bondage Jerusalem. Or how about verse 7? How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news, gospel news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. It's redemption, freedom. Why expect? Why be anticipating? Why put on your best? Why be eager? Why stop mourning? Redemption, freedom. What you've been longing for, no more enslavement, no more oppression. This is exciting. This is a time to, to say joy to the world. Not grumbling and mumbling about it. This, this is it. This is what they've been waiting for. It makes me think of Matthew 1, which references Isaiah, but not the end of Isaiah, the beginning of Isaiah. You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Salvation. That's what happens when Christ comes, first coming, second coming. When he comes, there's freedom from bondage. There's redemption. It's so interesting that Isaiah the prophet's utilizing, he's tapping into historic enslavement language so that they would understand. But what's also important is in Isaiah 52 and 53, it's talking about for their sins. So they understand enslavement. They understand bondage. They understand freedom and how God has freed his people historically. But he's talking about their sins now. 
utilizing that kind of language in a way they'll understand. This is better than physical freedom. This is ultimate freedom. I mean, if you read through Isaiah, it's pretty, de- it's pretty depressing. And I would say the most depressing part of all um, is not the external oppression of the people. It's <laughs> the self-inflicted oppression within the people, if you will. So when he utilizes this kind of terminology, it's redemption, it's freedom, salvation. They know about it in a historic sense, but now they need to experience in a personal sense. This is a time to be excited. This is a time to be filled with joy. And as we think about the historic birth of Jesus, even though we live on the other side of things, it's no wonder that we would want to be excited. Even though we're on the other side of it. This is so awesome. This is, this is the best news ever. The, 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 the servant comes and he suffers and he suffers for us. And as we'll see, not, not only for Jewish people, but for Gentiles also. Puts everything into perspective. It's exciting. Redemption. Okay, number three. When Christmas comes, God is vindicated. Big word for the day. God is vindicated. God is, in other words, shown to be right. You know, God makes a lot of promises, promises to his people. God makes a lot of threats. Positive promises, negative threats. But you kind of wonder sometimes, right? What are the people of God doing enslaved? Doesn't look like he's the all-powerful, all-knowing, Yahweh, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Doesn't even, look, doesn't even look like it to his people sometimes. It doesn't even look like it to you sometimes. Or to me. When Messiah comes, God is vindicated. God is shown to be righteous. God is shown to be a truth teller. God is shown to be who he always said he was. It's really important that we see that, that in Christ, our questions are answered. Let's look at verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. God is vindicated. For thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, I'll be honest and say that that's kind of hard to understand. And I wouldn't want to stake my eternal destiny on my understanding of it. Some would understand it to mean that... Well, I need to look at it to explain. You, back in verse 3, were sold for nothing because they're enslaved, right? And you shall be redeemed without money. And some would want to understand verse 3... 
as redeemed without money because salvation is free. That's true, salvation is free. But I don't think that's what he's talking about. Because salvation is free to us. Redemption actually cost a lot. Christ shed his own blood. I don't think it's talking about that. I think to, un- to understand it, here's my best take. And from reading others. Is to understand enslavement context, enslavement terminology. And to read it this way. For thus says the Lord, you, Israel, were sold for nothing. Did, did, were the Egyptians paid money? They, they weren't sold. They were taken. They were stolen, right? They're a God, they belonged to God and they were sold for nothing. They were taken. There wasn't, there wasn't an exchange between kings. Okay, I'm going to sell you these people and there will be a transaction here. And they will go and do a job for you and when they're done, maybe then I'll take them back. That, that didn't happen. You, Israel, were sold for nothing. You were stolen, and you shall be redeemed without money. God is not going to buy them back from the Egyptians. God's going to take them back because they're His to begin with. Again, I may be wrong. Others may be wrong in understanding it that way, but that's how I'm going to understand it. I'm taking you back. You belong to me. And that's not unrighteous. That, that's vindication. For, for thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. They were stolen from me, and I'm taking them back. Verse 5, now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people were taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. What kind of covenant-making, covenant-keeping God is that? He doesn't look very powerful. He doesn't look very faithful. All All day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. This is when Messiah comes. Therefore, my people shall know my name. This is experiential. This is close. This is intimate. This is how it's supposed to be. This is restoration. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. I think when we read all the verses, it starts to make more sense at least. On that day when Messiah comes and they are delivered by Him, then they'll know. And there won't be any more mocking of my name. There won't be any more of that by the opposition. There won't be any more of the questioning even by those who are mine. They don't have to say anymore, does God keep His promises? What kind of God do we have? This Yahweh doesn't really seem to act in a way that's consistent with His name. There'll be no more of that when Messiah comes. There will be no more of that when the promise is fulfilled. This is true with Christ on an unprecedented level. Does God really care? Christmas tells us that He does. Is God really good? Does God really keep His promises? Is He really loyal? Christmas tells us, yes, 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 yes. It reminds me of something that the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God 
find their yes in Him. All those wonderings and doubtings and questionings that plague our hearts that only God can see maybe, they find their yes in Christ. They find their amen in Him. You know, we jokingly say, whenever somebody says, I have a question for you, Pastor, and I like to say, Jesus is the answer. You know what? Jesus is the answer. God is vindicated in Christ. And there's even more to it because the opposition will ultimately one day be justly condemned also. But he doesn't get into that at this point in time. Does he really care? Well, yeah, he does. The vindication of God is found in the coming of Christ. First and second. When Christmas comes, number four, preaching and singing resound. Preaching and singing resound. Verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, gospel news. It's talking about a preacher, a proclaimer, an announcer who publishes peace. Good news is peace. There's no more war. There's no more conflict. Battle has been won. Who brings good news, gospel news of happiness. Who publishes salvation. It's proclamation, heraldic, heralding salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. Do those words sound familiar, by the way? Yeah, Isaiah took those from Paul. (laughs) They're super familiar to us because of Romans, right? In Romans chapter 10. Well, so many of the things Paul says are from Isaiah. And this is one of them. We, We know that passage because faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. How will they know without a preacher, without a herald? Then he talks about the beautiful feet of the herald, right? And the the idea would be in the ancient world, the world that he's addressing, here we are in the city. Here we are if we're in Jerusalem, as he's talking about. And, And what happens is the messenger comes to report about the battle. And and we're we're all waiting on pins and needles. Are we gonna be invaded or not? Are we gonna are we gonna be freed or not? How are things gonna go with us? Are we gonna be sold? Are we gonna be what what's gonna happen? Enslavement, freedom. Oh, how beautiful are the feet. Here comes the running messenger, right? With beautiful feet. When they come and they don't bring bad news, they bring good news. Salvation! Redemption! Our God, Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, reigns. He's on the throne. He is victorious. Which means good news for us. Means our freedom, our joy, our delight. Because he's done what he's done for us. And so when Christmas comes, Messiah comes, it is a time for preaching. Preaching good news. This is great news. Gospel. And in, in the, the, the baby coming, humbling himself. This is good news for us because he came to save his people from their sins. Yeah. That's why, why, why Christian preachers should love to preach the meaning of Christmas. 
And Christians should love to preach the meaning of Christmas. It's good news for us. It's great news for us. It's the best news for us. Our king reigns. Our king is victorious. It's happy. It's what it means. And now for the singing. Verse 8. The voice of your watchman, the one who who sits up on the, the city wall, right? The, the, at, the, at the watchtower, the watchtowers, on the lookout, looking for bad guys, looking for the opposition, looking for invaders, or perhaps looking for the, the preachers. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing. This is, this is unified. They, 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 they all see it. Together they sing. They sing for joy. For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Eye to eye, there's debate about what it means. Is it, is it, is it eye to eye? Meaning they all see the same thing? Could be it. They, or they see with both eyes. They see clearly. This is, this is in the imagination. This isn't uh, what they felt in their hearts. That they see eye to eye. Or it could even be eyeball to eyeball. That's how clear it is. The idea is pretty straightforward. They sing and they can sing together. It wasn't like, oh, I saw this. No, I saw that. I'm not really sure. Let's talk to a third party. Let's go take another look. What's true in the coming of Messiah is so clear that there can be unified watchmen singing. That's how clear it is. It's awesome. By extension, by elaboration, no wonder we sing. The clear testimony. What wasn't clear before in the coming of Messiah, first and last, is so clear that we can proclaim its meaning and we can unifiedly, if that's the right way to say it, probably not, in unison sing. This is great news. This is awesome. This is fantastic. And I love how far it reaches. It starts with the watchman. But then, go on. Here, here's like the open invitation. Verse 9. Break forth. Break forth together into singing. You waste places of Jerusalem, you formerly oppressed, you formerly attacked, formerly ransacked. For the Lord has, has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Oh, yes. Rejoicing. Verse 10, the Lord has bared His holy arm. I like that. Right? makes me think about if I was a young kid, how much I would like that. God flexes, you know. God rolls up his sleeve and shows his guns, you know. I mean, it's just like, he's the mighty one, right? The strong arm of the Lord, the powerful one. He has done it. Again, think in terms of Christmas and Christ's coming. It's the strength of God. Not against us, but for us. Because we belong to Him. The Lord, our Lord, has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. 
and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. It's awesome. More vindication, by the way. It's awesome. It's awesome if you want to see it from the negative. It's awesome if you want to see it from the positive side of things. This is going to be for everyone to see, right? Like in Philippians, when, where Paul draws upon these kinds of themes. For, for every, every tongue to confess, every knee to bow, even in the negative. All the nations will acknowledge that, that, that he's the one. But there's also the positive side of experience, right? This isn't only for Jewish deliverance. Started there to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, to the Greek. But this extends beyond to the nations. Not just in a negative way, but also in a positive way. This shouldn't surprise us, right? This shouldn't surprise us because back in Genesis 12, this is promised. And 15 and 17 and on it goes. This has been God's plan all along that it would be this way. I hope one thing that's happening this morning is you're, 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 you're hearing familiar voices. I hope you're not just hearing voices, but I hope you're hearing some, some familiar voices when we read Isaiah. That good, good news, beautiful feet thing, well, that was familiar. Some other things have been familiar. I hope you're hearing those voices because Isaiah is so influential when it comes to the New Testament. I hope you heard another familiar voice even right here. In verse 10, the latter part, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Mentally, I thought, hmm, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to the ends of the earth the gospel will go. Yeah, it will. Great commission, all nations starts in Jerusalem, extends beyond and outside. So that we can not only have preaching in Jerusalem, the meaning of the coming of Messiah, we have preaching worldwide, not only singing there, starting with the watchman, then shared by the people, but then shared to the ends of the earth. Let's move on. We have six of these, so we're going to go to number five. Number five, when Christmas comes, un, sorry, this one's kind of fumbly, kind of long, unprecedented confidence in the Lord results. Unprecedented confidence in the Lord results. Verses 11 and 12. Here's some good application for us even. In light of all this redemption, in light of the freedom, think in terms of old exodus, verbiage, language, imagery. Depart. Depart. It's urgent. Depart. Depart. Go out from there. Borrowing exodus language where the Jews would have been familiar. And they're to leave, right? They're to flee because God has freed them. Depart. Depart. Go out from there. And as you're going, he says, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. 
The idea is, as you're leaving, don't take with you any of the entrapments, right? If you're taking anything with you, if you're, if you're a priest or have an official role, you're bringing the holy vessels. But otherwise, your confidence is so in God, the Deliverer, Yahweh, your confidence is so in Him, when He says, you leave, you leave. And you don't have to have a plan B. You don't have to take the, the, the Babylonian, you know, fake pseudo-gods, just in case. No, when you flee, you flee empty-handed of all of that stuff, is the idea, Okay? And we might say, I don't really understand that because I've never been to Babylon and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Never had a shrine before. But we can understand the point. The great deliverer God who delivers through his servant, we're going to see, is so trustworthy. Eye to eye, they've all seen so they can sing with unison and proclaim the same message Count on Him, trust in Him, and you flee, and you flee empty-handed of all the plan Bs or other options in case this one doesn't work. God has been vindicated. Application for us is good. We, we don't need pseudo-saviors just in case. Just in case. You, you can trust Him. You can trust Him with all of your being, with all of your person. No contingency plan. He's the deliverer. Christmas should remind you, you don't need a contingency plan. He really came here. Reminds me of John, where John says, we ourselves handled, right? We, we touched him. That's how real he is. He came to earth, incarnation. Eyes to see. It's a call to devotion, to strict devotion. Strict in the best sense. And then he says more. I don't want to miss verse 12. For you shall not go out in haste. And you shall not go out in, go in flight. Kind of hard to understand, but I think you'll get it in a second. For the Lord will go before you. And the God of Israel will be your rear guard. You leave, right? But you don't have to leave in a what? You don't have to leave in a panic. You don't have to leave fretting and, and freaking out and worried and, and all troubled. Is it going to work? Is it not going to work? Ah! You can leave, but you leave with confidence that God is before you and God is behind you. This is sure, safe, secure Again, underscoring, you don't need contingency plans. This, this, should, should, this should bolster a kind of devotion in us. Uh, when we think of Jesus the servant coming and coming here and coming for us, he's worthy of all of my devotion, all of my praise. You can trust the trustworthy Redeemer. Okay, finally, number six. When Christmas comes, Jesus is the 
humble to be exalted servant. When Christmas comes, Jesus is the humble to be exalted servant. 13 and 14. Behold, again, this is good news language. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Servant is is who Jesus is in light of Philippians chapter 2, in light of chapter 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now that's out of the ordinary. Maybe it isn't because you're not, I mean, you're just taking it for granted, but it's out of the ordinary because if you think in terms of servant, my servant, okay, servant, shall be highly exalted, shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. That should strike you as an oddity. Servants aren't exalted. Servants are lowly. Servants serve. Kings are exalted. But what we see in Isaiah, and not just here, but moving forward, and what Paul is picking up on in Philippians is, the servant humbles himself, becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as a result of that, he is most highly, supremely exalted. Because he did what he was sent to do. So when we think of Jesus, we think of, you know, the the lowly one, born in a stable, in Bethlehem, house of bread, house of nothingness. Yeah, it's all voluntary so that he would be exalted as he accomplishes God's will in redeeming us. He will be exalted. Let's go back to the text for a second. I I got ahead of myself. I got too excited. My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Well, it seems that the connection is there, that he'll be exalted because of something he does, even as it says in the verse. He'll be exalted. Why? Well, he'll be exalted because he acts wisely. You might say, what does that mean? I might be tempted to think a lot of different things. If it weren't for Isaiah 52 and 53 being together. Because of what Isaiah 53 tells us, which I think is a bit easier to understand, I'm going to interpret 52 in light of 53 because there's a parallel. What does it mean he acted wisely? What is that? No doubt Jesus was wise, but specifically, what was his wise act? I don't think we have to guess. If you just drop your eyes down or over to 53 verse 11, there's there's a parallel where he uses a different word, but there's a parallel. Verse 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. That seems to be the parallel with his wisdom in 52. By his knowledge, 
shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He's using wisdom and knowledge in the, in the ultimate sense, right? Doing the ultimate right thing. And in 53, which elaborates, the ultimate right thing he does is he secures righteousness on behalf of those he represents as the servant. In other words, he brings, in other words, he justifies sinners. Which causes me, again, in my mind to go to Ephesians chapter 1. We don't need to go there for interpretation. I'm just putting pieces together. In Ephesians chapter 1, we learned about what the will of the Lord is. It's redemption. And here in Isaiah 53, we have the will of the Lord being carried out by the servant. All of this to say, ultimate wisdom by the servant. Ultimate knowledge by the servant is doing the will of God. And what is the will of God? The will of God is redeeming a fallen, lost, elect humanity. That's why he came here. Humbled himself. Became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, as a servant. Fascinating. Now what happens, and we're going to finish this up, after talking about, uh, in 52, verse 13, he talks about humility and exaltation. But then in verse 14, he goes back to humility. Verse 14 says, As many were astonished. So Isaiah 52, 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance that his form beyond that of the children of mankind. How about that? Some of your translations probably say, he was marred more than any man. Yeah. Think of what's going to happen. We learn about it in chapter 53. We learn about it in the gospel accounts. So humbled is he, he wasn't only born. He led a life of suffering which culminated even death on a cross. To redeem us, he becomes the cursed one according to the plan and purposes of the Father. But nevertheless, you want to talk about humility, there it is marred more than any man. Verse 15 says, so shall he sprinkle, some of your marginal notes say, startle, 
There's a reason it's in your marginal note because it's a hard decision to make. If it's sprinkle and that's the idea, cleanse like a, like, a, like a priestly kind of duty. He'll cleanse as a result of his atoning work. That would be true. If it's startle, well, that would be true as, as well. Many nations, kings shall shut their mouths. That would be, they would startle them to the point where kings shall shut their mouths because of him. That's kind of from the negative. They, they've been against him and now they're not going to be against him. They're going to have their mouths shut. The only thing they'll be able to do is confess that he really is who he said he was. Or it could be in the positive. He'll cleanse them and even kings. And they'll have their mouths shut in a positive sense. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Again, could go positive or could go negative. The reality is both are true. Because of what he does in his humiliation, mouths will be stopped in the negative because he will also be exalted. But mouths will also be stopped in the positive other than to offer worship. I just made myself a note and hopefully you're kind of catching on as far as reading it in verse 15. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. It's not something kings are used to doing, right? Kings, because of who they are, at least in their own kingdom, say whatever they want to say because no one outranks them. And here, the marred more than any man, lowest of the low, by voluntary action, humbled himself, shuts all of their mouths. More vindication, by the way. Suffering servant, faithful servant, obedient servant, victorious, exalted servant. So I like, I like to say when Christmas comes, so much comes. Three fitting responses. Moving into chapter 53, he says, believe. You want your mouth shut in the right way. Believe. It's a call to believe, to trust in Him. Another fitting response, moving outside of the passage in Isaiah 53, would be the earlier where He says, don't bring anything with you and don't panic. That'd be another fitting response. This is one to be trusted wholeheartedly. A final fitting response would be, if you're trusting in Him, in light of Philippians chapter 2, a fitting response would be, imitate Him. Not for your salvation, but because of your salvation. Christians should be humble people. Christians should act with humility in serving others, seeing them as more important than ourselves, not grumbling or complaining, as he says. What's so fascinating to me in Philippians is where he says in chapter 2, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's yours because you've been united to Him by faith. That's how we can have this mind. That's how we can have this kind of demeanor because of what He's done for us. So when you look at the baby in a manger, you say, to save me from my sins. Redemption. I don't need other pseudo-saviors. You say all those things, but then you also say, secondarily, 
Not as important, but also there and important. Imitate Him so as to bring glory to Him. Because in Christ Jesus, you have the same mind, the same mindset. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the prophet Isaiah. Thank you for the fact that we can know so much and for the fact that we have so many questions still. We have to depend upon you. Thank you that we have a great Savior in Jesus. Thank you that it's good news to us that he came and not bad news. Thank you that he has been raised from the dead so that we might have a sure hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.